Acts chapter 27, starting with verse 1 through the end of the chapter. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the Adriatium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Uh, uh, Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo but, uh, and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and and, and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then... Fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had put out without food... For a long time, had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, uh, of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, Paul has... I can't read this morning. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
but we must, run, we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found three fathom, 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had get, said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. <coughs> and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion wished to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land." Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that you would move in our hearts and in our lives as we read your word, as we study it, as we hear it explained. I pray that you would help me to explain it well, that I would preach and teach your word, not my own, that your people would hear and receive your word, and that it would shape all of us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to title my sermon this morning, And Why This Fear? I literally just gave my sermon a new title as we were singing that song this morning, And Why This Fear? I initially was going to title this sermon, A Clear Mind in a Hard Time. Well, you can go with whichever title you like best. If you like a clear mind in a hard time, say Amen. And why this fear? Say amen. amen. All right, why this fear has it. This is like the most postmodern opening to a, a sermon I've ever given. Just choose your way forward. What would you like me to do next? Uh, no, I'm taking it from here. So uh, the sermon is entitled officially, And Why This 
fear. Or a clear mind in a hard time, if you like that one better. I read this story about this boy named Johnny. Five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen. And his mother was making dinner. And she said, Johnny, would you open the pantry and go into the pantry and get me a can of tomato soup? Now, Johnny was afraid of going in the pantry because the pantry was very dark. So he opened the door and he looked at the dark and he thought, nah. And his mom again asked him, Johnny, can you please get me a can of tomato soup? And then Johnny said, well, Mom, I don't want to go in the pantry because it's dark and I'm afraid. And the mother sought to calm Johnny's fears and she said, Johnny, Jesus will be in the pantry with you. So emboldened just for a moment, Johnny opened the door again and began to walk in the pantry and then he had an idea. And he stepped back out of the pantry and he said, Jesus, if you are in there, could you please hand me a can of tomato soup? What, what Johnny understood, or at least potentially understood, was that Jesus would be with him in the darkness. What Johnny failed to understand, however, was that even though Jesus was going to be with him, Johnny still needed to walk into this moment of darkness, face his fears, and grab his mother a can of tomato soup. Fear can be paralyzing. And for many of us, we can be like Johnny and just simply be paralyzed by the reality of walking into this space of darkness, this unknown, and having to go about something that we really don't want to have to face. And then others just kind of sit back on their hands and say, well, you know, Jesus is going to be with me, and so maybe Jesus can just do it for me. You see, sometimes even our cliches don't really help us. Jesus is going to be, be with you. Yes, he is. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to go and get the can of soup for you. You still have to walk into this situation that you are facing. Are you with me? Yeah. So how does Johnny then overcome this paralyzing fear? Or in other words, how do you overcome your own paralyzing fears in times of hardship. As you go into your Monday, how does the God that you worshiped on Sunday conquer your fears and allow you to act, here's my initial title, with a clear mind in a hard time? Well, where does fear come from? It certainly is not from the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1-7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So if you go into a time of hardship, and that hardship leads to a paralyzing fear, it is not of God. Someone once said, Between the great things that we cannot do and the small things that we will not do, the danger is that we shall do nothing at all. That's what I mean by being uh, paralyzed by fear. Has fear knocked you out? Or 
facing a time of hardship, do you have power, do you have love, and do you have self-control? This is my 40th sermon in the book of Acts, and we have one more, and then we'll be done with this excellent book. And as we come to the end of the book, we see Paul, a prisoner now, being put onto a ship going from the Middle East to modern-day Italy to Rome. He goes from Sidon to Myra on his way to Rome. And while they're at sea, his hardships really begin. He nearly doesn't make it to Rome. He comes this close along, close, along with 276 others to their death, drowning at sea. This chapter really takes us on a turn in the narrative. We've been in chapter 24, 25, 26, we've been listening to and reading and studying the uh, trials and the speeches that Paul gave in such boldness to these various rulers and the leaders while he was put on trial for charges that, uh, uh, of which he was innocent. But now chapter 27 is a real turn in the narrative and all of a sudden the speeches are over and we are out to sea with Paul on his way to Rome. And as soon as we get, get there, like the whole first half of chapter 27 shows us that it was not going to be an easy journey. He was going right into that dark pantry, if you would. The first half of chapter 27 we could call hardship. Hardship. L let me just highlight the hardships that they faced at sea. It says the winds were against us, verse 4. Verse 7, we arrived with difficulty. Verse 8, we were coasting along with difficulty. Verse 9, the, the, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Verse 14 and 15, soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 16, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And then it really gets bad in verses 17 through 20. Let me reread those verses. It says, After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that we would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The, the movie, The Perfect Storm, has this, this scene which I think, for me, uh, encapsulates the, the imagination, my own imagination, of what's going on and what it must have felt like for these people on board. That movie, it's based on this event which took place in 1991 when a, a small uh, sh a fishing ship, boat, was, was out at sea. George Clooney uh, plays the, the captain, and he's got this whole crew of people that are on this little ship, and in this terrible uh, moment, a northeaster comes down, collides with a hurricane, and creates what they call the perfect storm, uh, which is extremely deadly. And so this ship 
is fighting against this storm the entire movie. That's basically the premise of what's going on. And uh, the all hands on deck are, are working to, uh, to turn the ship out of the storm and to move back into a different direction. They do get the ship turned. And for a moment, we think maybe they're going to uh, make it out. And then all of a sudden, you see this, this, this massive rogue wave come out of nowhere, and it completely capsizes the boat. And those that are trapped inside the boat drown, and at the end of the movie, the, the camera zooms back, and there's like this one guy uh, in the water with no life vest, surrounded by mountains of waves. And it's this hopeless ending. It's really a depressing movie. So if you want to be depressed this afternoon, go ahead and watch The Perfect Storm. And I think that that might have been what they felt like in this moment. It says that they hadn't seen sun or stars for days. This is a wicked storm. It says in verse 20 that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now these are, listen, these are professional seamen. These guys know what kind of storm they can get out of. And this isn't one of them. So like little Johnny, going into that dark room, these men say it is over, there's nothing we can do, and they become paralyzed by fear. And in our own lives, we really are just as desperate. And if it wasn't for the, 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 the but God of Scripture, you know what I'm talking about? If it wasn't for God's grace and activity in our life, all of us would look at our lives and say all hope of being, uh, being saved is to be abandoned. Yeah. Am I still on? Are we good? Am I coming out of here or am I just shouting? Okay. All right. You good? All right. You think of it uh, throughout Scripture. Think of the, the hopelessness of the human situation. Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And it looked as if their whole race would be wiped out. But God. During Jeremiah's day, Assyria ransacked Israel and removed them from the land. No king, no hope of a Messiah. But God. During the early days of Christianity, Christians were being burned at the stake, and it looked like this movement, which we call Christianity, would quickly come to an end, but God. During the dark ages, the gospel was lost, and in its place were indulgences and corruption and manipulation. Come on. But God. For 400 years, Africans were captured and sold like property with no rights. And everything looked hopeless but God. In our own church's history, 10 years ago, listen to this, this month, our church constituted, or, or rather covenanted together as a local church. But for four years before that, I never thought a church was actually going to come out of the mess that we had. Like we had no converts. Even my wife wasn't a Christian for a time. 
And I was like, there's no hope of anything actually coming out of this mess. Thank you. You said it for me. And how about your own story? Living for the world, pursuing lust, pursuing power, pursuing the flesh. You had no hope that you would be saved, but God. You see, someone once said that sometimes the Lord calms the storm, but sometimes He lets the storm rage and He calms His child in the midst of the storm. This is why the old saints would sing, we've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord. You see, God has a way of picking us up and turning us around and setting our feet on solid ground. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let me get back to the text. In utter despair, Paul comes with a but God message. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Which, by the way, quick lesson here. Sometimes our suffering and our hardships and our trials come because we don't listen to the warnings. Sometimes you've, had, you've got believers and Christians in your life who gave you a clear warning. Don't go that direction. And you went that direction. But you know what? God has grace for you even when your hardship comes because you ignored warnings. This is how wonderful the Lord is. So he says, you should have listened to me, yet I, I urge you, listen, to take heart. I still got good news for you. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you and all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, Paul says, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. We could call this section God's promise. Hardship, God's promise. They are going to be rescued. All 276 passengers on board ship are going to make it out of this storm. Now that's God's promise. This leads to the next question though. How do they get out? The answer is through the ordinary means of human activity. Now this is what I want to try to show you this morning. Is that God is going to do God's thing and God is going to do God's thing through us walking into the pantry and grabbing the can of tomato soup. Are you with me? And we saw this through Scripture as well. God brought Israel out of Egypt, and it was through Moses' obedience. God brought Israel back into the land, and it was through Nehemiah building a wall. God brought Christianity, Christianity out of uh, persecution, and it was through ordinary human means. God brought the gospel back to the church, and it was through the reformers, such as Martin Luther and John Calvin. God brought Africans out of slavery, and it was through people like Frederick Douglass and thousands of other pastors and activists. 
My point is that, that God is sovereign and God will do God's thing, yet He chooses to do His thing through normal, regular Christians having grit and passion and action. So, verses 26 through 44 of, of chapter 27 could be called human action. So we see hardship, God's promise of what God's going to do, and then we see human action. So look at verse 26. Let me show you the human action I see here. Verse 26, Paul see, uh, we, we see Paul's strategy. Paul says we must run aground. Verse 31, Paul says unless the men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 33, Paul urges them to take food. Verse 38, they lighten the ship. Verse 40, they loosen the ropes and hoisten the foresail to the wind. Verse 43, when the crew wants to kill the prisoners on board, the centurion, desiring to save Paul, steps in and saves all of them. Verse 44, so it was that they were saved. Well, wait a second. So what was? Like, how were they saved? Was it God's promise or... Was it Paul's direction to run aground? Was it God's rescue? Or was it Paul uh, directing the people to eat so they would have energy to swim? Was it God's provision? Or was it Paul's wisdom to say, hey, let's lighten the ship? Was it God's protection of Paul? Or was it the centurion moving and acting to save Paul's life? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, it's God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I briefly talked about this last Sunday night at our uh, prayer service. Meaning we as human beings must take responsibility for absolutely everything for which we can take responsibility. And then everything outside of which we can take responsibility, we then say that is God's job so for example i'll give you a couple ways that this applies in our evangelism proclamation is our work conversion is god's work in our spiritual growth avoiding sin is our work having renewed desires is god's work in our daily life caring for our family working our job Loving the people around us. Loving our neighbors. Pursuing good. That's all our work. All things working together for good is God's work. Are you with me? We can take it even a step further. Even in our actions, God is sovereign. Meaning it was God's idea that Paul would be saved and that all 276 passengers would be saved. And now Paul, from there, goes on directing people on the ship. Well, where did Paul get the idea that they should run aground? Where did Paul get the idea that they should eat? It came from somewhere. So God is sovereign even over our ideas. Even over the things that we choose to do. We could even take it a step further. 
even in the warnings that God gives us. Meaning, well, if you do this, you will not actually end up uh, uh, being rescued. Even in his warnings, God is sovereignly moving to accomplish his good purposes in our life. Let me give you the example of this. So in verse 22, we see that there is a promise. There will be no loss of life among you. So in verse 22, all 276 people are promised to not die. But then, when you get to verse 31, Paul says, when, when everybody's about to, they're freaking out, jumping ship, Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Unless the men stay in the ship, they will not be saved. Well, wait a second. God has already said that all are going to be saved, and God's promises will always produce the, the, the intended ends. Uh, he's never going to go against what he promises. Otherwise, he would not be God. Yet there is this warning given, if they jump ship, they're going to die. Well, which is it? Here's, here's what we see, is that God uses even the warnings in Scripture to cause us to abide in Christ, to remain on that road so that His promise to us will be achieved that we will make it. Are you with me? Meaning, I'm just pointing all this out to just simply say this. God is amazing. Isn't He? Like this just, this, you read this and this should just like blow your mind. God is amazing. The way that God in His sovereign plan uses all of the warnings and all of our actions and all of our decisions and even our failures to accomplish and bring about His good plan for your life and for His glory. God is amazing. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile or can you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And Spurgeon replied, I don't try to because I never try to reconcile friends. Meaning God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two sides of the same coin and we are better off not trying to figure uh, out the mind of God. We're better off to not try to figure out how all of this works together. Because I, uh, God's mind is just so far beyond our ability to fully comprehend. Yet we see it in Scripture. And so we are called then to not figure God out, but we're called to trust Him. We would be better off to take Him at His word. So let me ask you a question. How do you deal with hardships? How do you deal with these storms? How do you deal with these dark rooms? Do you deal with hardship with, with, with a sense of calm resolve, steady action, a clear mind? Or, in hardship, do you find yourself spiraling into utter confusion? Sleepless nights, a lack of appetite, anxiety, and depression. 
I was hanging with the hill, ki- the hill kids the other night, and I heard this story about there being tomato sauce on their ceiling. So I asked, how did the tomato sauce get on the ceiling? And so they proceeded to tell me that Ashton was, uh, or I guess Ayana had seen a mouse earlier in the kitchen, and she told Ashton about this mouse. But Ashton wasn't about to let this mouse keep him from his lasagna. And so he had to go into the kitchen, put lasagna in the microwave, which he did as quickly as he could, stuck it in there, boom, 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 ran out, hid, probably. I just picture him hiding, waiting for the ding, all right? Microwave dings. He runs back in, eyes wide open, making sure there's no mouse anywhere, grabs the lasagna out of the microwave, turns, runs with it as fast as he can, trips, falls face to the ground, lasagna goes straight up to the nine-foot ceilings in their, in, in their house, and there's tomato sauce on their sta- stained on their ceiling. That's how it got there. Here's my point. Fear causes us to do crazy things. Fear puts tomato sauce on your ceiling. For many, the equation looks like this. Hardship, or, or we could say potential hardship, meaning Ashton wasn't really facing a hardship, but there was a potential hardship. There could have been a mouse. You shouldn't laugh, Eric. Hardship plus not knowing the future equals paralyzing fear. That's the simple equation that many of us have. Hardship plus not knowing the future equals paralyzing fear. Paralyzing fear because of uh, suffering, because of the storms of life, because of the the waves of emotional swings that you face, because of the torrents uh, uh, of, of your feelings, because of the blows of setback, because of the winds of being overwhelmed. These kinds of hardships hit us. Some believe... Yes, God is at work, but I'm not going into that hardship. I'm going to sit back on my hands and let God do his thing. A.K.A. you don't do anything. You don't obey God. You don't act with courage. You don't move forward. Well, others say, well, I I don't even believe in this God. I don't really think God is even sovereign, or I don't think there is a God at at all. And so for them, it's just this frantic movement of trying to fix their their situation like a a rat on on a wheel, just constantly running and running out of fear. But you you see, the Christian is able to be calm and to have a clear mind in the midst of hardship. And act out of wisdom, knowing that God is sovereign. This is what I see Paul doing in chapter 27 of Acts. If I could summarize this message a different way, I would would put it this way. We should operate and act with wisdom. However, we are paralyzed by fear. God's sovereignty eliminates our fears and frees us to act, therefore, we act with wisdom, knowing God will achieve His sovereign 
plan. Let me draw out three lessons for you as you face your fears, as you face those dark rooms, as you face these winds and these storms. Let me draw out three lessons so that you might look at this, look at this hardship and say, you know what, why this fear? Why this fear? Number one, trust that God will accomplish His purposes in your life. Trust it. Let me say this again, just in case you didn't hear me. God will accomplish His purposes in His life. I didn't say God might accomplish His purposes in your life. I didn't say God will accomplish His purposes in someone else's life. God will accomplish His purposes in your life. And just in case you forget Romans 8.28, they're all good for you, all right? His purposes, if you are in Christ, His purposes are all good for you. And they will be achieved. God had a mission for Paul. And so, so God comes to Paul in the midst of the storm, and he says, look, you are to appear before Caesar. You're going to Rome. You're going to preach the gospel to Emperor Nero. God has a mission for Paul. And so for that reason, God is not going to let Paul die. Now, eight years later, Paul does die. Eight years later, Paul is beheaded in Rome. But this, Acts 27, wasn't his time. And so therefore, since God still had a mission for Paul, since God wasn't done with Paul's life, Paul, God is saying, I'm going to preserve your life. I don't care what storms may come. You're going to get through it because I have a mission for you, Paul. Well, how can we take comfort in that truth? Simply in this way, church. Know that God will accomplish His purpose in your life. And if God still has a mission for you on earth, you are going to remain on this earth until that mission is accomplished. Meaning, if God doesn't want you to die, you won't die. Meaning, there is not one person in this room who will die one day before God is ready to take you home. And when God is ready to take you home, guess what? He's going to help you through death and you're going to be all right. And one day you're going to be raised to new life. But nobody dies, quote, too soon. So we can trust Him. What trials might you be facing? You're in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. You you think you're going to die. You're in this storm. Well, God will accomplish His purpose in your life. Forty-foot waves are crashing into your boat. God will accomplish His purposes for your life. Your whole ship is about to be capsized. God will accomplish His purposes for your life. Your marriage seems hopeless. God will accomplish His purposes in your life. You're failing school. Your job is too much for you. God will accomplish His purposes in your life. Your anxiety is too great. 
God will accomplish His purposes in your life. Did I make that point clear? Secondly, secondly, not trusting God, meaning if you don't trust that God will accomplish His purposes in your life, not trusting God will lead you to paralyzing fear in hardship. Why? Every time you, you, you fall into some difficult time, some suffering, some, some unexpected tidal wave that slaps you in the face, why is it that you freak out? Why is it that you again fall into a spiral of sleepless nights, lack of appetite, inability to think straight? Is it not our lack of trust? And I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but we haven't trained our soul to respond with the kind of resolute trust that Paul responded with. Meaning, he will accomplish his purposes. Like even this setback is not outside of God's control and plan and story for your life. And it's all good. So not trusting God will lead to paralyzing fear and hardship. Look at the sailors. In verse 20, all hope is lost. In verse 30, the, the sailors are about to jump out of the ship into this little boat and, and with no flotation device and probably drown to death. Meaning, fear often makes you act in such a way uh, that, that causes you to jump into a more difficult and worse situation than you were ever in. I mean, let's just take Ashton for an example, as an example again, if I can keep picking on the young man. His fear of, of a mouse in, a, in the kitchen uh, causes Ashton to throw his lasagna up uh, and hit the nine-foot ceiling. Well, what's going on there? It's, it's not the mouse that causes the lasagna to hit the, uh, the, the ceiling. It's fear of the mouse. You see, the mouse could have done nothing to Ashton. Nothing. But, but fear grips you in such a way that, that fear itself becomes the problem and leads you to a greater problem. In Ashton's case, it was no lasagna. The lasagna is all over the place. That is far worse than a mouse running across your foot. You understand. Fear also just simply then leaves you paralyzed. Verse 33, the sailors are so sick with fear, they're not eating anything. It says they haven't eaten for days, and Paul's like, knowing that they're going to have to swim themselves out of this, Paul's like, guys, we've got to eat. We need to have energy. And so, so because of the fear, they're about to be completely... Uh, worn out and paralyzed and, and end up drowning simply because they didn't eat their food. It's, it, fear is our problem, not the storm. In poker, there's a term called tilt, which is used for a player who is so overwhelmed by his feelings and by his frustrations that he or she begins to make poor strategic 
decisions. Fear will tilt you, will so overwhelm you with all of these frustrations that you can't think about the next step, that you start to make poor strategic decisions. Why is it that Paul was, was able to see clearly, have this calm mind? Why is it that he was able to say, hey, let's run aground. Let's do this. Let's lighten the ship. It's because he was absent of fear. So trusting God then, trusting God destroys our fears, this is my third point, and leads us to calm action in hardship. Calm action in hardship. Look, Paul was a prisoner. Paul was not a trained sailor. Yet Paul, this prisoner, is the one on the ship of 276 others who starts to take over the leadership and starts directing people. Do this, do that. Directing trained sailors. We see Paul's action. Verse 26, run the ship aground. Uh, Don't jump out of the ship. Verse 31. We also see it's not just action, but it's calm action. I didn't just say that trusting God leads you to action. Trusting God leads you to calm action. In verse 35, this is where I see that. It says that when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were encouraged themselves and ate some food. You see, Paul is not like just frantically shoving bread into his mouth as he's trying to figure out, okay, is everybody in the right place and are we doing the right thing and is the ship lighted? Paul takes a moment and he's calm. And he he actually prays and thanks God for his food. Only a calm mind in this time of hardship can think like that. Now, Paul never once asked, how are we going to get out of this? We never once see Paul Paul freaking out about what what am I supposed to do? I don't see how this is going to happen. I I can't, I know there's going to be all of these different steps that we have to take in order to get the ship to shore, and and I can't see it all in my mind. I can't figure it all out. Paul never, he never freaked out over that. What did he do? Let me give you two, two things that Paul did, and you can apply these to your lives. Number one, he trusted God. And number two, he took the next step. That's all he did. He trusted God, and he took the next step. And that's what we should do as well. When you're in your own time of hardship, when you're facing your Monday, when you hit that wall, just trust God and take the next step that God has given you. And then just watch how God uses all of these steps to bring about His plan and His purposes for your life, and you will be amazed at God. Amen? Amen. Listen, church, hardship will come. It will come. We're, through almost, we're going on three years into this pandemic. We're at another peak. Uh, hardships are going to come to every single one of us. Hardship in this last week has come. I mean, it was stuck on 95. Matt, Matt and Shreya. Uh, uh, deaths in some of your families. 
Some of your friends and family members and members of this church have been killed to death in the last year. Shot to death. Depression and anxiety. Challenges at work. Layoffs. Underemployment. Inability to pay the bills. On a fixed income. Like You know that nobody in this room has or ever will escape hardship. But we can trust our God. And we can take the next step. And in the midst of all of that, church, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because the captain of our ship is Jesus Christ. And Jesus faced the greatest storm any of us will ever face. Jesus faced a storm that you will never have to face. Jesus, church, faced the storm of God's wrath. The judgment of God for sin. The greatest kind of darkness that any one of you can ever imagine. And if you're not in Christ, that is the greatest storm that you will ever face. But I'm inviting you now to turn to this captain who took this storm on his own body on that tree 2,000 years ago. And he walked into that dark space and he took all of the judgment for our sin and he swallowed every bit of God's wrath so that you would never have to face that storm. And three days later, church, he rose from the dead and he calls us all to trust in him and to turn from our sins. And for all who do, we are forgiven of our sins. And we have the promise that one day we will be raised to new life and live with God forever. Meaning, the victory is already ours. But God, the storm is over. In your hardships, in your problems, will you be defeated? Can even death defeat you? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus defeated the greatest storm on our behalf so that we might not face Your wrath. Because of the Gospel, God, we can have great confidence no matter the hard times that we face. No matter the difficulty, the challenges, the curveballs of life, we can trust you and then just in that calm resolve, take a next step. And I pray that we would do so even today and that we would watch how your promises come true in our lives, that you will keep us, that you will never let us go, that all things will work together for good to them who love you. And one day, when we see Christ face to face, God, that day, on that day we will rejoice because we will see how it all worked together for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.